On today's episode of the Fandom Science Podcast, how does altitude training affect our hormone and red blood cell production? Does it really work like a lot of athletes and coaches seem to think so? What doesn't add up about altitude training that made some scientists skeptical about it? And what's the drawback to using it? Do the benefits outweigh the potential costs? All of that and more with Dr. Christoph Siebenman from the Institute of Mountain Emergency Medicine in Italy. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel for the best sports science content. Enjoy. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking time out of your out of your day. I know it's beer o'clock right now in Italy, so <laughs> some precious time you're taking out. Yes, well, it's Italy, so beer o'clock started an hour ago, so that's fine. Don't worry. That's true. Yeah, it's always beer o'clock. It depends on your attitude. <laughs> yeah. um, so, first of all, I'm kind of curious about how you got started working in altitude training. What got you in that field? Well, I cannot really take much credit for that one because so what I can say is I was always uh, actually since since I was a student before I even started doing any research, I really liked altitude physiology because I like if I was cool going doing studies in the mountains and doing outdoor science and so on and also picked my master thesis in this topic. Uh, and then also during my PhD, I ended up doing a lot of altitude work. And But this altitude training study that kind of, um, I would say, maybe sparked the debate somewhat and got me rooted in this area a little bit more. Uh, well, you know, when you're a PhD student, you pretty much do what the professor uh, says you do. And uh, it was the professor who's also quite, quite well known in the area, Carson Lundby, I'm sure you've heard of him, who has, uh, who has designed this, this, uh, I, uh, this study. And I was uh, working on it a lot and uh, lucky enough to be the first author on the, on the manuscript that came out. And that kind of, uh, I would say, sparked my interest. And then I was also like maybe rounding it up with a bit of um, experience just from general altitude physiology, which I would still say is maybe a bit more my interest still now than, than just the, the sports part. But I could kind of combine the, the findings that I made there and in, interpret them in an altitude training direction. I joined and I helped out in another altitude training study. And then I guess lately this uh, debate article, which I assume is how you came across me as uh, uh, for, for this uh, for this podcast is what was the next step. So, but uh, maybe this is a good thing to start uh, to say from the beginning, the beginning as well. So I'm, I consider myself more a, a physiologist than a, than a sports scientist. And I guess I also look at, uh, at, at, at things a little bit uh, from this perspective. So I'm not a trainer or not a, not a, not a specific uh, sports scientist, so, which, which may be, uh, well, causes some uh, different thinking than, than people may have that are purely interested in the performance, of, uh, performance aspect. Right. Well, I think uh, that's kind of like the general field of sports science too. It's like, yeah, there's, there's actual like super specific sports scientists, but then there's also everything around it too, from the psychology to the physiology to everything, like all those perspectives. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, like, uh, since altitude training, the way it's supposed to work, it is, I mean, it is a physiological trick that you kind of play to, to you could say, cheat the body into a better uh, better fitness uh, or performance state. So I guess it's, it's it would be difficult to study those things without having a clear understanding of the physiology uh, behind sure. it. And uh, again, I was always, I guess, more interested in mechanisms, in, in physiological mechanisms than actual actually in performance changes, but uh, altitude training is maybe a nice merging pot between those two, those two interests. 
Yeah. Okay. So let's get into that cheating your body sure. and tricking it into thinking <laughs> there's something going on. Uh, could you explain what the basic premise of altitude training is for anyone who's not really familiar with it? Yeah. So maybe just to, to start this off and make it uh, really clear. So, I mean, first of all, when you talk about altitude training, I would say most you're talking about a training form that you would use, well, where you would use any time of altitude or uh, hypoxia, hypoxia being the, the term for like a reduced uh, oxygen availability uh, in, in the air that's surrounding you. So if you talk about altitude training, you say that you use either this altitude or this artificially simulated altitude, but to improve your uh, performance, not at altitude, but when you come back afterwards to sea level. So this is important because it's not the same as altitude acclimatization. If you do altitude acclimatization, you go to I don't know, two and a half thousand meters because you know your, your competition will also be at that altitude and you want to acclimatize to that uh, altitude before the competition starts. That's a different thing. Altitude training means you go up there trying to be better when you come back to sea level afterwards or close mm. to sea level. The other thing that I think should be clarified in the beginning when we, when we debate altitude training, uh, we normally talk about athletes and uh, I would say preferably athletes at the high level. As we will discover a bit later, it's, uh, there's a lot of effort doing an altitude training intervention. And the outcome, even if you, uh, that you may or may not expect is, is small. So I don't think anybody would argue that you have a huge performance increase. So unless you're really at a very high performance level, it's hard to, to argue that, it's, um, that, that, that you should do this kind of stuff. So those two points, I think, when you go to altitude to perform at sea level and it's an intervention added for athletes. Mm-hmm. Then you can say there's basically three forms of altitude training. One would be like the, what you call the classical altitude training, which I assume most people uh, would understand, would think of when they hear of altitude training, where, where you simply, you know, uh, translocate to a, to a place at altitude, moderate altitude, normally somewhere around 2,000, 2,500 meters, and you perform, you live there, and you also perform your training there. So you have the combo of being passively exposed to the altitude and also performing training at altitude and therefore in this hypoxic environment. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of split, cut this into the two components. You can do the lift high train low uh, protocol strategy where you would be living at altitude. So getting the passive exposure, but you go down for your training sessions to lower altitude. The idea is that you acclimatize to altitude, get the benefits that you think you would get from that, but you can preserve your training intensity by going to a lower altitude. Everybody who has run or cycled at higher altitude knows that, well, you, you cannot go at the same pace. So you, you go lower to try to be able to perform at the same pace. And then the third would be the opposite. So you, uh, you live and sleep at sea level or close to sea level, and you would only do your training at altitude. Here it would mostly be simulated altitude, so uh, uh, artificially created hypoxic environment with the idea that uh, the hypoxia increases the training uh, resp- or the, the performance response to training. So those are the three uh, concepts that are around. It should also be mentioned that more recently, uh, there is a, a kind of side form of the live high, sorry, live low train high, which is called repeated sprint training in hypoxia. So all the other forms that I was talking about, they were commonly used by endurance athletes. This repeated sprint training, you don't do endurance training in hypoxia, you do short, uh, very intense sprints with short breaks in between. The idea here is not to improve endurance performance, but to improve your 
repeated sprint ability. So if you if you're for example a soccer player or a, a tennis player that you don't fatigue so quickly when you do repeated sprints. So those are the the, the three forms that are available basically. And so does that answer the question or does that Yeah, no, that's perfect. And so we'll get into the 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 three different types but I guess the the basic idea behind it is that to increase red blood cells in the body or is that to increase the production of EPO? Yeah, so there's basically, uh, you, depending on the strategy you're using. So as I said, when you do uh, live high, train high, you both live at altitude, so you have altitude acclimatization and you train at altitude. Mm -hmm. The idea of living at altitude and having this passive acclimatization is, as you say, and I'm sure we get into this a little bit deeper, that you produce new red blood cells. So as we would say, you expand your total volume of red blood cells that are circulating or that are in your circulation. The opposite training at altitude or in hypoxia, uh, the idea behind that is that you have some, um, you, will not, you will not get an expansion of red cell volume by this because you just don't have sufficient altitude exposure. The idea here is that you have um, muscular adaptations. So on, on a, improvements on a muscular level that will that will make you perform better after the intervention. Uh, I can tell you right ahead now that I would say, at least from an endurance perspective, the idea that you get a higher muscular training response if you combine with, if you do training in hypoxia has pretty much been uh, dismissed by now. I don't think that this, is, that this is very popular anymore. So if you cut out the repeated sprint stuff, which is again, not for endurance uh, athletes, I, I guess it's fair to say that the live low, train high, has uh, lost most of its uh, supporters because just the, the data was really, really not convincing. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that didn't make sense to me uh, right ahead is I know live high, train low, that makes sense because you train better at sea level uh, than you do at high altitudes because of the, the oxygen and all of that. So it never made sense to me why you would live low and train high. I mean, unless you're doing the sprint, the, the repeated sprints, like you said. Yeah, um, yeah. It never made sense why you would do that. I mean, it is you know, it's not it's not really debated that on a muscular level, if you ha if you're hypoxic on a muscular level, it triggers a variety of gene response, and some of those could actually be related to some ergogenic uh, uh, changes. So some of them may be actually beneficial if you just look at uh, from a genetic perspective. So the idea is, yes, when you train, you may get hypoxic in your muscle. This triggers a training adaptation. So if you do it in hypoxia, the idea is you get even more hypoxic in your muscle. So you will trigger an even stronger response, which I guess makes some sense on a, on a, uh, from a theoretical perspective. It's, it's just that uh, who, every, everybody who has tried it pretty much has found that it doesn't really uh, mm. improve you on, the, on a muscular level. Uh, mind you, I would say that the studies that are around the best control studies also don't show that it makes you worse, which is kind of, could kind of be used against the, so the, as I said, the live high train low idea is that you, that you go training at normal altitude, so you would avoid the negative effect of training in hypoxia. This also hasn't really been proven. So I would say the best studies show that when you train in hypoxia, just the training itself, or at altitude or at sea level, you, you get a similar effect on the muscles. Mm-hmm. So again, we're, yeah, we're gonna get into into that debate a lot more. Um, I'm, I'm more curious about if, let's say, you live high and you train low. So the, the mm -hmm. point of that is to produce more uh, red blood cells and EPO, correct? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. So could you just explain a little bit how these two affect performance, like how they enhance it? Sure. Like so. 
yeah, so when we do like uh, endurance exercise, which is mostly related on aerobic metabolism in the muscle, the muscle obviously requires uh, oxygen to do the contractions. The, the higher the, the performance of the muscle, the, the, like the, the faster it contracts, the, the more oxygen it uses. And uh, the red blood cells are the cells circulating that bring the, the transport, the oxygen from uh, our pulmonary circulation, so basically from our lungs, to the exercising muscles. So if you have more red blood cells, you will have a better capacity for oxygen transport. And as I said, the higher you perform, the more oxygen you need. So it's easy to see if you have a higher capacity to increase your oxygen transport, you will also have a higher uh, aerobic exercise capacity. This is, I would say, uh, or I wouldn't say, I would, uh, you can just say this is proven beyond uh, reasonable doubts that if you have more red blood cells, your aerobic performance uh, will improve. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. You can see this, for example, with blood uh, autologous blood transfusion studies. If you take half a liter of your blood cells, uh, let your blood recover, and then reinfuse them, your performance will most certainly get better. So that's so blood far doping. so good. Yeah, that's blood doping exactly. This works. I mean, yeah. I guess there's enough uh, <laughs> evidence for that. <laughs> unfortunately, the second part you asked about EPO. So EPO erythropoietin is the the hormone that is mainly uh, responsible, main, the, the main regulator of our blood cell production. It's produced in the kidneys, and uh, it seems like a main stimulus for it for the kidneys to release erythropoietin is uh, is the reduction in oxygen delivery to the kidneys. So when we go to altitude or to a hypoxic environment, the oxygen content in our blood decreases. As a result, the kidneys get less oxygen. They sense that and they start releasing EPO. EPO goes to the bone marrow where red blood cells are uh, produced, triggers or accelerates the, the production of new red blood cells and your um, number of red blood cells starts to increase. Again, we normally call, we, we normally speak of a red blood cell volume expansion. It's important to know we're not talking about a single red blood cell that gets a bigger volume, but like the total volume. If you were to take right. all the five liters of blood centrifuge, you have like two liters of red cells. So that's what we call about when you call, talk about when you mm -hmm. talk about red blood cell volume. Yeah, so the number of cells increases, and so the number increases. Yeah, but it's it's not the con not only the concentration; it's really the total number that you're having. Mm -hmm. So not only the concentration in blood, but really how many number, how many you have, what the what the total volume is exactly, and that this increases at altitude, at least at certain altitudes. Also, there's a, there's no doubt about that. If you go high enough for long enough, you will have red blood cell production. And I'll, I'm going to ask you about how high is enough and, and how long is enough in a second. Yeah, um, um, that's a scary question, but go on. <laughs> but so sticking with this increase in, in EPO and RBC, um, by RBC I mean red blood cells, um, how does that compare to injecting EPO into your body illegally, so like just doping, or let's say doing blood doping? Yeah, so at least from a scientific perspective, the, the huge majority of studies that have that have studied the effects of uh, blood doping or autologous blood transfusion, they have used pretty high uh, volumes of red blood cells that, that they have removed and put back. So normally it's some, something like 400 to 800 milliliters, which is, which is high considering that, okay, as an athlete, you will have a high red cell volume, maybe two and a half liters or something. But still, if you expand that by another 400 or 800 milliliters, that's, that's a tremendous increase at altitude this is a much much smaller uh, the effect is much smaller and i'm sure we'll get back into this a little bit later again but 
this needs to be kept in mind. So it's certainly not the same. You will not get an expansion of half a half a liter or something. So it's difficult to compare altitude with um, with those blood transfusion studies. There is, however, uh, more, more recently, there was a study conducted in Denmark where they have used smaller um, smaller volumes for auto autologous blood transfusion, which also showed beneficial effects. So uh, I guess there's still a bit of debate how much you will actually need in order to get to get a significant improvement. So how much red cell expansion is required for that? But it's certainly what is used in the huge majority of studies is much higher than what would you what you would expect at high altitude. And that's why it's legal to, to train at high altitudes and all that stuff, and it's illegal to do blood doping. And well, no, it's not really the same because I mean the, the thing is training at a high altitude is not you do not do you, you don't Natural. manipulate anything artificially. So I mean, even if it gave you a huge red cell volume uh, enhancement, I don't think it would be banned because it's it's still a natural response. Mm. Yeah, that's a fair point for sure. Um, okay, so let's get into a little bit of the of the nitty gritty here. Let's do it. So how much improvement are we really talking about here? Like performance gains wise, how much would you improve as an athlete? Yeah, so we're, 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 we have to be a bit careful for not getting ahead of ourselves because as you, as you know, and as probably uh, most people will hear by now, I'm not very convinced that you will have any improvements at all. But I would say that the people who, that the supporters of altitude training would say that you improve your uh, endurance capacity maybe something between two and four maybe five percent if you're lucky so like which obviously and uh, let's be clear here which is a bit with not a bit it's a lot for a yeah. for an elite athlete although also a lot of studies haven't really been done with elite athletes but with trained athletes so it, it could be less in elite athletes but you're totally right so it sounds like little for for an athlete it's obviously tremendous i mean it makes a difference between winning the olympics or or being somewhere in the well, second half, second half or whatever. So this can really make a big, big difference if you're a top athlete, no doubt about that. So this is what people are hoping for, something like uh, two, three, four percent. Mm. Okay. And so <clears throat> how long do these effects last after you come back to sea level for competition? I think that, I mean, there's barely any studies investigating this. Some, some studies have uh, reported up to three weeks afterwards but most studies they do uh, one or two weeks afterwards. I uh, I know from a practical level that many um, coaches recommend that you should wait something like three weeks or something. I would say from a from a scientific uh, perspective, it's at least not proven that this is any better than coming back and immediately performing. If you look at the red blood cell response, I can give you a better answer because there I can tell you that uh, if you increase your red blood cell volume at altitude within one or two weeks after return, you will be completely back to zero, at least unless you go to, I don't know, for, for, for a year to 5,000 meters. But if you go for a couple of weeks to an altitude, which will give you a red cell volume expansion, which in the same range as you would expect it, hopefully with altitude training, this will be gone pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So this is a thing that like, you know, with altitude training, often you have a little bit researchers saying one thing and uh, or scientists and, and coaches and athletes saying other things. And this causes a bit of a clash sometimes because athletes believe in something that the researchers don't and the researchers uh, say, look, there is no evidence there, and the athletes say, you're a bookworm. I know it works, and uh, I guess both have their uh, have their justification. So it's, 
I hear that sometimes that people say, look, you're, you're not an athlete, not a coach, you're a scientist, you don't know what's good. And I mean, it's in a way, it's a fair argument. If you feel like you're getting better all the time, why would you li listen to the bookworm? But uh, at least from a physiological perspective, the red cell volume response, which people think is the main driver behind altitude training performance gains disappears within a week, maximal two weeks. So I would argue that it makes sense that also the performance gains that you may have would disappear in this time. But again, the scientific data for this to show how fast it goes down is, is pretty much absent. That's a lot shorter uh, of a time period than I thought. One to two weeks. I thought, you know, a month or something, at least. Uh, yes, so from the top of my head, the study that I know that, so in our study, we have tested two weeks after after four weeks. So we had a four weeks training intervention. We tested up to two weeks afterwards. But as you know, we didn't see anything. I think in one study that I, from the top of my head, they tested three weeks afterwards. But it's so it certainly doesn't get, it didn't get better within these three weeks. I think the benefits were just retained. But uh, so I, I like to look more at the red cell volume response mm -hmm. because there is more data there and that that diminishes rather quickly okay so so altitude training has been like we said it's been prevalent for such a long time mm -hmm. um, but lately there's been this just like this hotly debated area so what doesn't add up about altitude training if we're going to talk in details here like what doesn't add up about altitude training that makes some scientists skeptical about it yeah so i mean Let's maybe start with the live low, train high, because I mean, that has, sure. that I, I would say that has, except again for the new form that has popped out now, which uh, which which also uh, I acknowledge shows more, uh, I would say, potential than the, than the classical live, high, live low, train high for, for endurance athletes. So the live low, train high for endurance athletes, I would have said that that hasn't really caused that much of a controversy when, when it was accepted, at least among scientists, that it's not beneficial, because I think it hasn't been as popular among uh, high-level athletes as particularly live high, train high. So I would say the scientific evidence is pretty clear. I would say most athletes probably kind of thought that already anyway. So, you know, everybody let that kind of go. Uh, with, with the other ones, it's a bit more tricky because, as you know, uh, a lot of athletes worldwide, they, they strongly believe in, in, uh, in either live high, train high or live high, train low. And I would say, and I find this a fair argument as well. I mean, this is something we shouldn't ignore. I mean, even if, if uh, I'm looking at it from a scientific perspective, it, I mean, that's something that's stuck in my head as well. If athletes are not stupid, I mean, they will, or, uh, they will, they will know whether they get better repeatedly with something or not. Uh, so if they do this for such a long time, you would assume it is probably a good thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. But then I, I guess what, uh, what, what sparked, uh, so, so maybe that, that helped, gave it a bit of the benefit of the doubt, you know, that even if uh, studies that were, either studies weren't positive at all, or if they were positive, they had uh, quite dramatic methodological flaws. People kind of overlooked that because they thought, okay, it's, it's kind of clear anyways that it works because all the athletes are doing it. And this is just, okay, there's some limitations to the study design, whatever. I mean, it just confirms what we already know. I would say a couple of years ago when the when the, the, the very good, the very well-controlled studies, particularly placebo-controlled studies started to be conducted and didn't show a an effect of particularly high train low strategy. Uh, maybe some researchers started to 
uh, obviously we got a little bit on that we got pushed a little bit into this direction because of our findings but then you start to look at the at the data a little bit more critically again and, and you start to realize how how weak the support uh, actually uh, often is for for something that many people think is is like a given that it works so i would say if you ask what's not adding up yeah i mean the the rational behind it uh, certainly m m has some sense to it as i said if you go to altitude sufficient altitude for sufficient time you will expand your red cell volume i wouldn't i wouldn't debate that that's a given for me as well how much is sufficient as we said we go back into this a little bit later second point um, if you have uh, more blood cells your performance will increase as an athlete so that that's why i say the rational behind it makes sense right you found the method to increase your red cell volume and red cell volume increases um, your performance what doesn't make sense is first of all uh, that the altitude that athletes are using so mostly they will go to something like 2000 meters for a few weeks uh, from a classical altitude physiology perspective that's far too little altitude exposure to provoke a red cell volume expansion so i give an example we did our study at the research station in switzerland at three and a half thousand meters so considerably higher than where athletes uh, would normally do their altitude training Plus, they were there 24-7, so they didn't go down to lower altitudes, so they had continuous exposure. And they only had a red cell volume expansion of about 100 milliliters. Now, just to go back, what studies have normally mostly used if they do blood transfusion studies is four to 800 milliliters of red cells or something. So a much, much smaller expansion in these people that were for four weeks at much higher altitude 24-7. Now, there's another point coming in. Uh, the more trained you are, the more red cells you have. So this is uh, this is one big reason why trained athletes are much uh, are much better than we are. They have a much higher red cell volume, and there is evidence. And I I acknowledge it's not like uh, one to one direct uh, directly proven, but I would say there is still strong evidence showing that the higher your initial red blood cell volume before you go to altitude is, the the smaller the increase you get at altitude. So if you already have a lot, you will not gain much more. So in the study that I referred to, we had untrained uh, individuals with a normal red cell volume who only uh, increased by 100. So I would say it's, it's very reasonable to expect that a highly trained athlete would have even less. And again, sorry for repeating, at three and a half thousand meters with uh, four weeks of full-time exposure. So it's, it's difficult from a physiological perspective to see how three weeks at 2,000 meters should give you a significant uh, red cell volume expansion. One thing to acknowledge is that the physiological of the effect of this altitude is, is very poorly studied. It's mostly people going to those altitudes normally use athletes. And if you're an athlete, your, your red cell volume will also change if you change your training regime. If you go to training camp, you will have most likely an increase in red cell volume. Whether this altitude per se is enough to increase your red cell volume has in, independently of being an athlete and training and so on, has not really been tested, but again, based on our data at higher altitude, it seems unlikely. So I would say that's the that's the first point. Um, so you asked me what's not adding up. I think that's the that's the first point. Uh, the second point is if you have a really close look, and I've, I don't know if people don't do it, or maybe it's my perspective, but if I look at the scientific evidence that's out there, it's striking how 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 poor it is. There is like if you talk about live high, train high. There is barely any studies done, I acknowledge that, 
But from the studies that are done, there's pretty much nothing positive. There is one study a couple of years ago, they had a little bit of a, uh, in swimmers, they have a somewhat higher in improvement after altitude, with high train light, train high than after, than in the control group, but they also had a higher training effort. If they included this, this effect disappeared. Uh, so there's really not a lot of strong evidence for this. There's an old study in policemen, actually, from the 70s, uh, published in German. Uh, they, they got better with live high, train high, but I don't know if you can, you know, transfer findings in German, from German policemen to, to elite athletes. That's certainly a limitation. If you look at live high, train low, there's an interesting uh, review written a, couple, a few years ago, again, from a Danish group summarizing all the live high, train low studies that have measured actual performance changes so not you know not via 2 max not uh, or maybe also but not only hemoglobin mass and so on but most important that measured what's important for an athlete am i getting faster afterwards mm. many studies don't do this many measure some indirect thing again like via 2 max they summarize the studies that have um, really measured time trial performance before and after altitude training if you look at this review you will see that from all the live high train loads, so there's pretty much nothing showing ever showing a beneficial effect. Hmm. Some of them show, okay, here it goes up. Uh, some of them use special statistics that are now being more and more often not allowed by the term, journals anymore. Some of them say, okay, in the, uh, in the altitude training group, it improved, but not in the control group. But a study that clearly showed altitude training group, it goes up and it goes up more than in the control group that's a very rare thing. And there's much more studies not showing this than studies actually showing this. And now this is what, what to me really makes a difference. If you, if you look at those studies, except for, uh, there's two exceptions, all the others are not placebo controlled. And this is to me uh, a huge limitation because uh, athletes doing altitude training, even if they go to study, if they take the time to go to a six week study somewhere, I'm sure they expect to get better with the altitude training. So to me, there's little doubt that they will be benefiting from a placebo effect. And despite this placebo effect, there, you know, even if this is incorporated in all those studies, there's still no clear uh, indication of a benefit, which is remarkable because there is studies simply giving, testing the effect of a, of a placebo effect, you know, giving people sweetened water and telling them you're getting carbohydrate drink and this improved their performance by 4%. So more than what you would see in most altitude training studies. So even though the athletes must have benefited from this placebo effect, they still weren't better with the altitude training than the control group, which to me is a very strong argument against uh, the benefits of it. There is two placebo-controlled studies, one conducted uh, by us and one by uh, colleagues in Denmark. Uh, they, they even conducted in a crossover design, and in both of those studies, there was also no effect whatsoever from, from the live high train low intervention. So, sorry to interrupt, but just kind of, if you could explain what a placebo-controlled study sorry, is yeah. for anyone who's not uh, familiar sure. with so, it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, what we do in, in research is... Uh, the, the, the gold standard uh, design for studies, the, the crossover placebo control design crossover, uh, meaning that every athlete would, would, would do uh, like both the control, so the sea level training camp once, and then the altitude training camp once, and 50% would start with the sea level control and the other 50% with the altitude training, and then you cross them over so that all athletes do both interventions. Right. This is obviously a huge effort, so most people don't do this. They just have... Um, a placebo group or, or even a control group 
trading at sea level and the, and the altitude training group. So now about the placebo effect, if you take an athlete and you subject him to any form of training and tell him, you know, we think this training will make you much better, the athlete will get better, regardless of whether it has anything to do. You can probably give him some chewing gum and say it's EPO, it contains EPO and he or she will perform better after a month if he or she believes that it actually contained EPO. So there's little- fascinating. Which is very fascinating. Yes, exactly. Um, but then, I mean, the brain drives us during exercise. So if you if we cheat our brain into thinking we're better, uh, we get better. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's uh, in, important to, if you have any kind of intervention where the athlete reasonably expects to get better, that you do it in a placebo-controlled way. This would mean that the athlete doesn't know whether he or she is in the in the group that actually gets the altitude training or in the control group that doesn't get altitude training. So in those placebo-controlled studies that were done, obviously it's not when you go to altitude, it's impossible to to blind the the athlete whether 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 they're living at altitude or at sea level. But when you use simulated altitude, where you hypoxia, as I mentioned earlier, where you just decrease the oxygen content in the in the surrounding air, you can do this without the athlete actually knowing whether they're getting whether they're exposed to the simulated altitude or not. Got it. That makes and, sense. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, then maybe I should have explained that before. But again, in this perspective, so the studies testing the placebo effect in athlete, they clearly show that if you just tell an athlete, again, for example, you're getting some carbohydrates here while they weren't, they improved their time trial performance more than in pretty much every or altitude training study. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's, I would, again, I think if you're an athlete going to an altitude training study, you expect to get better. So you will benefit from a placebo effect unless you're placebo blinded, which in almost all studies they're not. And if you still don't get better than the control group, then I don't think the, there's much support for, for the actual intervention. So the altitude training to be beneficial. And then there's a... What, what doesn't add up? So there's one more thing, which, so I, I talked about studies, uh, how, how few studies actually are showing uh, beneficial outcomes. This is looking at it from a study perspective. If you look at it from an individual athlete perspective, and that's also a fact that's often a little bit neglected, the outcomes that you can expect as an athlete are extremely variable. So it's not like, you know, you take 10 athletes and 10, if you have in a study a 2% improvement in the altitude training group, it doesn't mean that all the 10 athletes that were in the altitude training group got 2% better. There's a very big variation. And the example that I like to bring is from a study group in, in, in Dallas, in Texas, who have done a lot of uh, very interesting altitude training work. They have had uh, 39 athletes doing altitude training, either live high, train high, or live high, train low. And, out of, and they have retrospectively analyzed how many got better, how many stayed the same, how many got worse with the intervention. So out of those 39, they only had uh, 17 that actually got better with the altitude training. 17 out of 39, seven state uh, they got a little bit better, but they considered it like an insignificant change because it was only a few seconds. And then there were 15 that actually got worse in their performance. And uh, people start calling those people, uh, those athletes that get worse non-responders. I think that's not a good argument. They should be called negative responders because it's, uh, getting worse is not the same as not responding. So to summarize, out of 39 athletes, uh, 17 getting better, 15 getting worse, and seven not really changing, and this is coming from a group that is uh, that are big supporters of the altitude training. I think that's also not very encouraging. Uh, if you're if you were a, an athlete training for the Olympics, would you take 
uh, would you do an intervention where that where I told you, look, your chances is uh, 17 out of 39 that you will actually get better, but then there's 15 to 39 that you actually will get worse. I personally wouldn't. No, it doesn't sound like good odds. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think so either. Yeah. So let, let's start to dissect this a little bit more about which you know all the parts that you that you listed that don't add up about altitude training. Uh, so first, let's start with the altitude itself. Like how mm. high, um, how high is enough? You said that they usually train around two thousand to twenty five hundred meters, right? That's like yeah, the something usual. that. For athletes, so it, it yeah. often when they use the simulated altitude, they will go a little bit higher. So sometimes up to three thousand meters if they use natural altitude. Mm. I would say two and a half thousand meters. Uh, some some go as low as two thousand meters or even lower. But I would uh, recommendations are around two and a half thousand meters for mm. natural altitude and maybe three thousand for for simulated altitude. Right, and so that would be enough, like three thousand. That's that's the what they should be at. For for the if they want a red cell volume expansion. Yeah, like if you they mean, want like a sufficient improvement in because we're saying that the altitudes they train at right now are not enough. So what what should be enough for them to, to produce like actual effects? Do you think? Yeah, I mean if you if if you just look at the uh, red blood cell volume expansion, you would say the higher you go, the better because the higher the hypoxic stimulus, so the less oxygen you have, the more your uh, erythropoietin will increase, the more the faster your red blood cell volume expansion will go. So there is actually data showing that, uh, for example, at 5,000, 3,000 meters, you have a um, substantial 7% red cell volume expansion in all, only 16 days. But obviously, uh, 5,300 meters is pretty severe high altitude. The thing is, and that's something that I uh, uh, said before, the problem is it's not, very, it's, it's not well investigated. What altitude, at what altitude you start to produce new red blood cells? So again, the altitude studies that are conducted between 2,000 and 3,000 meters are normally altitude training studies. And uh, some of them do see, uh, actually a few of the, quite a few of them see a red cell volume expansion. But there it's a little bit difficult to dissect what is the response to training, because also training uh, leads to red cell volume expansion, and what is the response to altitude. So, and this is like, if you if you go back in time, maybe... 15 years and just look at the classical altitude studies, not the, not the altitude training studies, you find statements saying like below 4,000 meters for at least three weeks, you will not see any red cell volume expansion. And uh, our data that I referred to earlier from, from Switzerland, uh, at three and a half thousand meters also shows, I would say, a, a rather modest red cell volume expansion. But it's difficult to say, frankly. I don't think anybody can tell you at what altitude red cell volume expansion, at what pace it goes, at what altitude. What we have tried to, the problem is always, you have so many factors to, to play around with. You, know, you can vary the altitude, you can vary the exposure time if you wanna have like a dose response curve. And each study you have to take some people to for a couple of weeks to altitude, it's, a, it's pretty much a life work of research you have to do. Do you understand mm. what I mean? Yes, yes. So what we have been trying to do is a so-called meta-analysis where we piled together the, the data from, uh, from all the altitude studies that were out there at that time that measured red cell volumes uh, change. It was 66 studies at that time and tried to model from all this data uh, how the red cell volume uh, response is. And uh, according to this data, you shouldn't really expect anything to happen below 3,000 meters. 
So this would this would support that all the altitude training is, is, is performed too long. However, trying to be fair here, as I said, there is also not so much data at the lower altitudes, you know, because all the lower altitude studies are, are the altitude training studies. So it would actually be interesting to just take a couple of uh, normal untrained people, bring them to two and a half thousand meters for four weeks and see if independently of any training or anything, they would have an expansion of their red cell volume. If not, then I would say you can clearly argue, okay, the altitude is just insufficient. Hmm. If they do, well, then it's certainly a point for the altitude training community, although they still will have to consider that potentially in an athlete, the response will be will be slower than in an untrained person. So we don't necessarily know which altitudes are optimal just yet, but what we do know is that the current altitudes that they generally train at may not be optimal. We certainly are, are probably uh, not optimal. They're, they're certainly for red cell volume expansion, they're not optimal because the higher you go, uh, the, the faster your red cell volume expansion will be and they go to very moderate altitude. So from this perspective, they're certainly, they're certainly not optimal. Mm-hmm. The thing is they cannot only, if you're an athlete, you cannot not only think of, altitude, of uh, red cell volume expansion. You also have to be at an altitude where you, that you tolerate well and that where you have a good training environment and so on. And that the higher you go, I don't know how high, if, uh, how high, to what high altitudes you have gone before, but the certain altitude life is getting pretty inconvenient, particularly if you're a, if you're a, an elite athlete and try to recover outside of your training times and so on. So um, they they kind of try to find the golden middle between you know mild altitude that doesn't stress them too much and at the same time still increases their red cell volume. So that that was going to be my next question is like okay so the altitudes that they train at right now are not optimal so they need theoretically they need to go higher but going Mm -hmm. higher is easier said than done because that causes a lot of stress on the body could you explain a little bit about what kind of physiological stress takes place on the body when you go to like really high altitudes yeah so a a common misconception about altitude is that it's like this uh, that all it does is increase your red cell volume. And uh, altitude has a huge amount of effects and we're still starting to try to figure out a, a, a big part of them. So, But we know that uh, the red cell volume expansion is one small component of, 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 of a systemic response that gets stronger the higher you're going. And um, so for examples, the, the classical ones, when you go up, you start to, uh, to breathe faster, your heart starts to pump faster, pumping more blood in order to maintain the the oxygen transport, then you will uh, start to, like your your blood would get thicker, but not because of red cell production, but because it loses water. So it's we call this plasma. That's like the, the, the liquid in which the, the red blood cells are swimming. So you lose that, so your blood starts to thicken. Then you create more blood cells and your, your blood thickens even more. Uh, you have uh, nervous system changes. Uh, you have vascular function changes. So your vasculature starts to, you have uh, uh, altered regulation. You have different uh, changes in uh, blood perfusion to the brain. So there's a, a, a huge variety of responses that occur. And some of them, or even many of them, could be uh, could have negative impacts on, on athletes. So, for example, the first and easiest one to think of is, is, is mountain altitude illnesses. So, if you go to altitude too rapidly and to high altitude, you can get uh, one of, of three different uh, diseases. You can get acute mountain sickness where you get nauseous, uh, you, you start to get headaches, you sleep poorly, uh, and so on. So, 
this normally goes away within a few days. Uh, if, if, if you're acclimatized, if not, you have to go down, but that's, that's annoying and will keep you from training, but it's certainly not something that will, that's a huge concern otherwise. You can also, uh, if you're very unlucky, you can get a, an edema in your lungs or in your brain. And uh, before anybody complains, I'm happy to acknowledge that this is certainly not a common thing at the altitudes that, that the athletes go to. But if you were going to 4,000 meters, for example, directly, then this, this is something that can happen if, if you do this too rapidly. But I still wouldn't say those are the biggest concerns. With, 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 I don't think those are the reasons why athletes don't go higher because you could just, you know, you could go to two and a half and then every day go a bit higher then you would probably not run into these problems. What I, what I would really worry about if I was an athlete was um, the sleep state disruption that you get at altitude. So certainly your, your sleep quality will deteriorate. Maybe it will recover, but something that will not recover is something uh, called periodic breathing. Uh, what that means is that when you're sleeping at altitude, you get a really strange breathing pattern. You all of a sudden completely stop breathing. And after about 10 seconds, you get a very vigorous uh, ventilatory response. <laughs> and then you stop mm. breathing again. So your breathing turns on and off and very exaggerates or so completely off, very strong on. And this can have a variety of... Uh, of negative consequences consequence for your health and also impair your recovery then when you go to altitude you have something uh, you experience something called ventilatory acclimatization which means that you start to to breathe more which makes sense because you need to get more oxygen into your lungs but this gets stronger and stronger over time so it, it increases within the first few minutes but as you say at altitude this will get even higher and when you come down to sea level this persists for a while so meaning that if you're, uh, let's say you're an athlete and you're on your bike performing 300 watts, you need a certain amount of, of, of certain volume that you breathe, a couple of, uh, I don't know how many liters, but, and then you go to altitude, you come back and do the same performance. Most likely you will need a higher, you will breathe more for the same uh, performance, for, for the same work uh, output. And that's not a good thing because the more you're breathing, the more blood your respiratory muscles are uh, using and they kind of steal it away from the from your leg muscles that are actually supposed to do the the actual performance work that makes you win the race another thing is that when you go to altitude your sympathetic nervous system which is like the uh, fight or flight part so uh, it's part of your autonomic nervous system which is what we call the part of your nervous system that you cannot uh, control yourself so that's automatically controlled hence the uh, autonomic nervous system one part of that is called sympathetic nervous system, which is like uh, causing your fight and flight response. So if you, if you see a tiger coming out of the forest, that uh, this will be triggered immediately and get you into a position where you can run faster and resist more stress. And not so surprisingly, this gets activated when you go to high altitude because, well, we're in an environment where we have less oxygen. Surprisingly, the longer uh, we stay, similar to the, to the breathing, this increases uh, even more. And when we come back to sea level, even though we're uh, in a completely normal environment, again, it stays elevated. And this could also, could also have negative impacts for an athlete because it, will, it may have, uh, impair your ability to distribute your blood flow to your active muscles by, by causing constriction of the vessels going to those muscles. So I know this is a bit theoretical and very me mechanistic, but there's a variety of of uh, altitude responses apart from red cell volume expansion that could actually be detrimental and that are completely overlooked in the whole altitude uh, training theory but are maybe also one reason why people don't go higher because they would risk a stronger activation of those mechanisms and so 
So that's really funny. It's like when you look at altitude training, people think your red blood cell would, would, would go up and that's great for performance while ignoring mm-hmm. the 1500 things that you just mentioned that are not good. I mean, uh, 1500 is maybe a little bit <laughs> exaggerated, <laughs> but, uh, and, and I'm also willing to acknowledge uh, or happy to acknowledge that, uh, this stuff hasn't been really studied whether it occurs during altitude training. So this is again, something that I transfer from physiology because in physiology, there's no doubt if you go to altitude, this will happen, Whether it happens at the altitudes where altitude training is happening has been uh, not well studied at all, but I think sh- really should be studied before before his training form is recommended. There is other things as well. Your your pulmonary circulation constricts your right. Your heart will have more trouble pumping the the blood through your pulmonary, so through your lung circulation, which could uh, lead to some adverse remodeling of your heart and so on. So there's a lot of a lot of processes that go on, and I think it's sim- it's too simplistic to just pick out the one that you think is good and say, hey, this is fantastic without uh, really investigating whether the others are occurring. Hmm. But from this perspective, it's certainly good that they're not going to 4,000 meters. And so a two-part question here. Um, do those negative effects also happen when you simulate altitude instead of going to like an actual high place? And also, how do you simulate altitude? Yeah, so that's a... Uh, that's a question. That's a trick uh, I have to answer. Be carefully because there's two very uh, <laughs> distinct ways of thinking. So I mean, I think there is little doubt that the effects will also happen if you if you go to simulated altitude. The question is whether uh, for a given simulated altitude they will exact, they will be as strong as for the same natural altitude. So maybe the you know the the magnitude of the response may vary a little bit, but they also happen. Yes. Um, now, how do we simulate altitude? Basically, it's very easy. What we, the air that you're breathing consists almost exclusively of nitrogen and oxygen. So actually, the major part we're breathing is, is nitrogen, and there's only 21% oxygen in that. If you want to simulate altitude, all you have to do is administer more nitrogen to the air so that when you increase those 79% to maybe 85%, all of a sudden, you only have 15% of oxygen in, in the air that you're inhaling. And that simulates the same reduc- uh, reduction in uh, oxygen. We, we call it oxygen pressure, so the partial pressure of oxygen, the, the pressure that only the oxygen in the surrounding air exerts on you. If you, re- you can reduce this with this simulated altitude by the same extent as it is reduced reduce at altitude. So the effect will be the same. Your, your oxygen content in the blood will decrease. Some people believe that the effects are somewhat different. Some people say the effects are the same, and this is an issue that is still uh, debated, but I think at least qualitatively the effects will be the same. Quantitatively, they may maybe, who knows, differ a bit. Yeah, and I think it would go back to the issue of um, trying to control for all the environmental things around you. Like when when you're in a natural high altitude, things around you, which ultimately affect you, your mentality, your performance or whatever are a lot different than when you're in a room that has simulated altitude in it. And it's tough to control for all those little things. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, actually, that's also a point that that's maybe speaks for altitude training, particularly natural altitude training, that if you go to a secluded place somewhere, somewhere uh, in the mountains, you may have a very nice training environment that motivates you to train and that, uh, and that this has a beneficial effect. That could uh, most certainly be... Um, 
yeah, so but that would be somewhat independent of of the whole altitude, and you could just you know <laughs> go to a nice secluded place at sea level as well. But uh, there is also people arguing that the problem with simulated altitude is that either you have to, some people, for example, use tents that they put over their bed. So if they just uh, are exposed during their sleep, they would get some, maybe something like eight hours of simulated altitude exposure. What, did, what we did, we did, uh, we confined them to bedrooms that are like uh, flushed with this uh, simulated altitude air, hypoxic air, as we will call it, kept them in there for 16 hours per day, which of course is not the nice thing in the world to be in your room for 16 hours per day. And some people would also be worried that this could have a negative effect by kind of like, you know, imposing some kind of inactivity on the athlete. But really, you're just training them for the corona lockdown. So you did them a favor. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a while ago. There. Yeah. <laughs> there, wasn't, there was no corona back then, only the beer. Yeah, it's true. Well, maybe their adaptations, uh, you know, stayed the same until the corona hit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's go back a little bit to earlier. We talked about how for the amount of uh, time that they spend at high, by the, I mean, athletes, by the amount of time they spend at high altitudes and for how long, and the altitude itself, they're not producing sufficient red blood cells. Because you said you you did the study where you sent them to high altitudes, uh, you 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 brought them back and you measured their their differences in red blood cells, and it wasn't that high, correct? Yeah, yeah. Which uh, should also be acknowledged, of course, isn't the strongest evidence on the planet either. To say we had a different group that would probably respond more and send to higher, and they didn't have a strong response. I mean, I acknowledge it's not a great as great uh, a proof as if you were actually uh, just putting people to 2,000 meters or two and a half and measure there directly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the common recommendations for altitude training would be that you do like three or four weeks of altitude exposure, although also some uh, researchers promote as only as little as two weeks and also uh, found red cell volume expansion. And uh, I mentioned before how negative, the, from my perspective, the, the scientific evidence is, how poor it is for altitude training to work. What has to be said, in all fairness, that in re- with regards to the effects on red cell volume, uh, it looks a little bit better. So there is more studies that are actually uh, reporting an increase in red cell volume with altitude training. I kind of like, if you read the debate article that we have been writing about it, we, we kind of argued, hey, this is nice for you, but frankly, it's not relevant unless it makes your performance better. So if you're an athlete coming down with with 3% higher red cell volume, but your time trial performance hasn't improved, then well, thanks for nothing. So I, I kind of feel like, of course, it's important to see, uh, to debate what altitude is optimal, how much red cell volume could you expect, la di da di da certainly that's an important thing if you, if you try to optimize it. But the starting point should be, I think too much of the debate focus on this, the starting point should be, are people actually getting better when they're doing it? And in most studies, they're not getting better. And this is a little bit overlooked, in my opinion, because people say, look, altitude training works. This and this and this study has shown a red cell volume expansion. Uh, nice to see, but this should only be supporting evidence, like a mechanistic explanation for the main finding, which should be a performance increase. And there it looks not very good. Okay, and this is exactly what I want to get into right now. It's like the the <clears throat> the part of the sample that don't see a difference in performance and also the part that actually see a decline in performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question is, why do you think some athletes see a decrease in performance after altitude training? 
I frankly have no idea at all. I mean, in some studies, you probably you could have problems that they're uh, that they're developing uh, some disease when going that they're developing the flu, that they're overtraining out of motivation, that they're in an altitude training group, and so on. That could all play an effect. And then another thing is, as a, like a few minutes ago, I, I was referring to the physiological responses to altitude that could actually have negative impacts on performance. And uh, maybe that's one reason why, why some athletes are getting worse. Another maybe a bit more um, cynical way of looking at it is by saying, look, if you have an intervention that doesn't work and you let athletes do it, then you will automatically have some that are getting better and some that are getting worse. I mean, it's just the spread of, of repeated testing that just happens. Nobody will be exactly the same if you do a test for like, you know, before and after any four weeks intervention, obviously you will have a bit of a spread. And if you have a, an intervention that's not doing anything, then some will get, be better the second time, some will be worse the second time. Uh, otherwise, I don't know. I don't know why some are getting worse. I don't know why some are getting better. Yeah, my, again, uh, based on the assumption that it's maybe not the, not a very ergogenic uh, intervention, then I would simply say it's just the spread of the numbers of repeated testing. And so do you think there is a way to know beforehand whose performance will benefit from altitude training, whose would stay the same, who would decrease? Like, is there a screening method from a physiological perspective? Yeah, to get like to answer this, I need to get a little bit away from what I just said before. So let's assume for, for the benefit of the doubt now that altitude training is actually an intervention that works and it's not just the spread of repeated testing that makes some getting worse and some are getting better. So let's assume it is an intervention with ergogenic potential and the ones that are getting better are actually getting better because of the intervention and the ones that are getting worse are actually also getting worse because of the intervention. So let's assume we have, we really have those responders and non-responders or as I said, I would prefer to call them negative responders because they're not, not responding, they're getting worse. So let's assume that actually exists. That brings out, apart from the weak data, weak supportive data, that brings out another big problem that nobody knows anything about who responds and who, not, who doesn't respond. I told you before that in the 39 uh, athletes studied only uh, 17 actually got better. You could say, hey, that's fair enough. I mean, like if I'm one of those 17, I'll just do it again. If I'm one of the other 15, then I know, okay, this is not something I should do again because it makes me worse. If it was like this, fine. Then you could just test it out once before some small competition, check out whether it works for you or not, and then either keep doing it or, or not do it anymore. The problem is that the few studies that are around that did repeated in the same athletes, repeated altitude training interventions. So did one intervention checked who's getting better? Did the second one checking who's getting better? They show a horrible picture because one study did this in eight athletes and there's only two athletes that got better after each intervention. The rest, uh, I think one got worse after both interventions and the other, they got better after one and worse after the other. And I think those are actually the ones worst off because the one, if you always get worse, fine. I mean, you just don't do it anymore. But if you get, you try it first, you get better by 3%. You think that's fantastic. You do it before the biggest competition of your life again. And then, oh, bad luck. Now you're one of those who's getting worse. I think those are in a terrible position. So I don't think anybody can give you a rational... Um, by the way, the same is true for red cell volume. If you repeat it, uh, the ones that increase the red cell volume will not be the ones necessarily that increase it the second time and vice versa. Some don't increase the first and uh, don't increase the first, but increase the second time. 
So we don't know. And uh, to me, this is a big limitation, actually, because it's always sold uh, as something that kind of works for everybody. And then if you read a little bit close, you see, okay, there may be non-responders, but that implies that if you're a non-responder, fine, you're a non-responder. And if you're a responder, you're a responder. As far as we know, that's not true. And we have no way of, of knowing in which direction you're going. Hmm. So to further complicate things, not only is it questionable whether it works or not it's also questionable whether it works every time or not and whether it will affect you negatively every time or not exactly there's just like so much uncertainty around it there is so much uncertainty i would say there is a lot of uncertainty on a on a global level of just looking at studies itself as i said the majority of studies fail to the majority of controlled studies and the large majority failed to show a beneficial effect uh, and then on an, even in the in the positive studies on an individual level, you still have this spread. Not everybody's getting better. Uh, some are getting worse. So you have that problem as well. Yes. So it adds to the uncertainty. You have the global uncertainty of the studies, and then you have the individual uncertainty, which is uh, so yeah, double uncertainty. Right. And so, can we go back a little bit to the part where you mentioned how it's tough to create like a blinded group and a control group and all that in in altitude training studies. Uh, can you go back and kind of explain in, in kind of simple terms why altitude studies are so hard to design and, and, and make them up to that gold standard? And also, because they're so hard to design, how does that impact our uh, ability to kind of extract information out of them and use it in a, in a, in a good manner? Yeah, so... As I've said, the, the gold standard method for scientific gold standard method would be what we call uh, double blinded. So neither the, the athletes nor the investigator would know which one is doing the altitude training and then also crossover, meaning that everybody does the altitude training part once and the placebo control or the placebo part once and then you cross it over. So have them start with one uh, and then do the second and vice versa. Uh, the crossover part has been has been done uh, now recently even in a in a placebo controlled double blinded manner the thing is it's uh, with natural altitude you can pretty much forget it because i mean how are you going to blind people of whether they're living at altitude or close to sea level that's right. it's fairly impossible so if uh, that pretty much rules this out for if high train high already because i mean there people have to be continuously at altitude so this this makes it almost impossible to plan unless you have a huge simulated altitude room where they can live and train but i think after a, one or two weeks they will they will escape the room they will not or enjoy unless- it anymore Unless you literally blind them, but that that's not going to pass ethics, you know. <laughs> like, that would be tough. Not these days, no. Maybe <laughs> Corona time would have been a good time to actually do those studies because everybody was inside, anyways. Yeah. Yeah, unless you literally blind them. Uh, Maybe in the forties that would that would fly. Yeah, we, we prefer not to go there, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> unless you do this, it's 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 really tough for live high, train high. With uh, live high, train low, well. It, it can be done not with natural altitude because there you actually have to shuttle them in your car or cable car, whatever, up and down. So you would, again, uh, either have to blind them or really pick like really stupid uh, athletes if, if you want <laughs> if you don't want them to know that <laughs> they're hard to find. Or uh, you use, as we did, the simulated altitude where you put them in a room where they don't know whether the oxygen content is manipulated or not. And then some people are arguing that the simulated may not be as good as the natural. Well, 
who knows it's hard to it's hard to conduct the natural one in a double blinded manner so that's if you want to do it double blind you have to use a simulated one Mm. Uh, doing the crossover obviously just adds a tremendous amount of work because you pretty much have to you have to provide a washout time in between you know when they when they do the altitude training you cannot just directly let them do the the placebo part as well because they may still have some effects from the preceding altitude training intervention so you will have to let them come to your facility do one altitude training or placebo intervention placebo again meaning like being at sea level and training at sea level then you would have to let them go home and come back preferably at the same time of the season next year because you don't want to mess with their with their, you know where they are standing in their competitive season and do it all over again it's a tremendous amount of work it's difficult because uh, a lot of them will maybe lose interest or be disappointed with the first outcomes not come back or just not find the time and so on you as a scientist will have to wait for a long time until you can get some some data that you can publish it has been done but it's a lot of work and it has been done in combination with placebo control only once. Uh, again, in a study that didn't find any positive effects. Mm. And so all those aspects just make it so hard to like truly measure the impact of altitude training to a gold standard level. And because of that, it makes it hard to, to know whether it's you know a good idea or not. Yeah. And then, I mean, you're, you're also like what, what, what adds to it is you're, you're dealing with... Uh, subject population that is that is not so easy to to deal with because i mean uh, as i said you preferably want to have elite athletes their schedules are busy and they're uh, often and rightly so a bit uh, careful with what they allow you to do they don't want to be lab rats because obviously what they're most interested in is their performance and their performance if they do something wrong their performance will decrease if they eat wrong if they if they get sick and so on so they're delicate to handle they're difficult to recruit and uh, particularly if you want to if you want to do mechanistic studies and put in a lot of catheters and take a lot of blood they're often very very hesitant to uh, understandably very hesitant to do that yes yeah well, I was just going to ask you, so you sent, in one of your studies, you sent people out, so they were non-athletes, I think you mentioned, you sent them out to yeah. high altitudes for 28 days or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. My question is, how the hell do you get people to go live in a high altitude for 28 days when we can't <laughs> even get people to fill out a survey online or something for five minutes? Well, there's a few tricks to them. One, uh, I would say the best trick is you're actually paying them, so that uh, that helps that a helps. lot. And then... Uh, a lot of booze, probably. <laughs> yeah, well... With the athletes, I mean, often you find athletes that uh, that think, cool, I can train, I even get some money and I can go to training camp and I will get better. So that's, that can be a pretty sweet deal. Uh, with with non-athletes, uh, we, we either had normally success with people that just like going to the mountain. I think fantastic four days in the, in the Swiss Alps where you can also go skiing and climbing and so on. Oh, in the well, if you're sending the Swiss Alps, I mean... Yeah, that's where Come it was. On. So that's it. Yeah. Next time you and need then, someone, let me know. Uh, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, <laughs> and then another very good thing is actually um, to find, uh, you know, to find uh, the lazy slackers who just want to play video games all day and you tell them, look, you, you just have to sit in there for 28 days and you can uh, <laughs> watch TV and play games or a program or whatever the kids do these days. So that's, uh, uh, we, we find very good uh, participants that are coming from, from that edge. Not not really altitude interested and not very athletic, but just like, you know, I just like playing video games till five in the morning and uh, if People I get paid like for it, even better. So I don't know if you if you belong to this group, but... Uh, I'll belong to any group. If you send me to the Alps, I'll adapt. Don't worry about me. Uh, I will happily do that. <laughs> it's just you're, you're not that close, but uh, I'm, I'm sure we can manage. Close. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you like a, a bit of a tricky question. And, and again, it's going to be hard for you to like give me a yes or no answer. Uh, but in your opinion, like given everything you know, do the potential benefits of altitude training outweigh the potential downside of it? I mean, I, I tried to reach out here a little bit to the to the people who are big supporters of altitude training uh, again by saying um, I acknowledge and think it's uh, it's important to stress that I look at all of this from a from a researcher's perspective, not from an athlete perspective. So. Uh, as I've said, I would say if you purely look at the scientific evidence, I would say it really doesn't look for to me as if as if the the benefits are outweighing the uh, well. You're just in most studies they're not getting better, so it's hard to actually talk about benefits. But you should also, from the negative perspective, the potential health effects, the money that you invest, the time that you invest, the time that you would otherwise be spending training with something that, like doing something maybe more efficient as a training intervention so from from this perspective i would say there's it doesn't look like there's a lot of benefits and uh, there is some negative aspects so i don't think that outweighs it from a scientific perspective and um, let me stress here there's most certainly researchers that would uh, very vigorously disagree with me so they should be acknowledged here as well but uh, uh, i mean you asked me for my opinion so i give my opinion <laughs> yeah. but then i would also like to say if if you're a coach and an athlete and you have made very very positive experiences with it i mean people can get very offended if you tell them it's not working what you're doing is like uh, you know nothing it works for me i know it better and so on i mean by all means if it if you feel it helps you you like it you you feel it's a good thing but uh, go on i mean why would i mind or care most certainly i mean uh I mean, even if it works for you just because you believe in it just uh through a placebo effect you know that could be even if it works just in uh, that way for you why would you care as long as you're actually getting better afterwards i guess you're pretty happy so as an athlete or trainer if it works for you always by all means keep going if you look at it from a scientific perspective i would say uh, no it uh, i wouldn't recommend it mm. and it's it's funny because this is a lot of things um this is related to a lot of things when it comes to, let's say, sports psychology uh, training methods or even physiology training methods. A lot of it is just in the athlete's head. But even if it's just only in his head or her head, well, maybe that's that's good enough. Absolutely. I mean, there is this part, if you believe that if you're convinced that it's a good thing, uh, you will probably get better. Uh, then there's also the part that... Uh, Alex Hodgson was, was writing about that as well. I mean, just a part of going to a training camp with, with uh, uh, equal my, uh, like equally minded uh, other athletes that you can train together and you're in a secluded environment where you can only focus on your training and so on, that will most, most likely make you better, actually, whether the, how much the altitude actually helps here. If you're an athlete, you say, I don't care. I think what, what is fair to say if you're if you're uh, you often hear these like you know amateur athletes uh, running their first or second marathon and trying to come get under i don't know three and a half hours and say you know now i just do a week of altitude training before just to get the to get this little bit of extra i mean that's probably not worth the effort you know <laughs> again it will probably help going to an environment where you where you train where you focus on the on the training but from physiological from physiological perspective 
it will probably help you more to lose two kilos of weight or something than to 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 go to for one week to two thousand meters in a hotel where you do your training. I think it's also an intervention you should go for once you kind of reach the the end of the road where you've tried all the training and where you have really adapted your body to the maximal to the maximum where you're your performance machine and you look for whatever little tiny bit of extra you can get, then I think I would start to consider it, but not when you can just you know, drink one beer less on the weekend and it will still have a beneficial effect. So that has a lot of implications for the sports systems, like uh, let's say the Australian sports system. I was watching a YouTube video on them where they implement simulated altitude for their athletes. So they're just living at normal sea level, but, you know, all their compound, whatever, is at altitude, uh, simulated altitude. That has a lot of implications for it because now you're missing out on all the nice training camps and high altitude with like-minded people you know in the mountains where you can focus and get all that nice stuff around you now you're just at a boring compound with less oxygen concentration in it uh, no nice mountain scenery and all that stuff and plus it might not even be working for you and it might actually be decreasing your performance so like all that has implications for those systems yeah, on the other hand, you probably will if you, if you go to one of those uh, one of those facilities. I mean, the chances of of meeting mostly other highly trained athletes there is certainly good, and uh, probably they're also not in the in the middle of a traffic jam area, but in some areas where it's good for training. So you will probably get the the, the training camp effect as well. And again, uh, it's fair to assume that that the people who are doing those kind of interventions are probably the ones that are actually expecting to get better as well. So they will probably also benefit from the placebo effect. So yeah, maybe they will have positive experiences. Maybe this whole conflict just boils down to uh, like what 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 yeah, what the athletes see on the practical everyday life and what the researchers see through the through the scientific glass of actually trying to tickle out what what is the mechanism, what is the reason. If you adopt uh, whatever makes me faster works perspective, then yeah, then you you may you may take a different opinion on it. So, to kind of, I guess maybe summarize what we've been talking about, but also if you have any additional ones, feel free to add them. But what are some myths and misconceptions around altitude training that people think is true, but is either false or not as straightforward as we think? Just in general, what what are some like myths out there? Where to start? So I think um, if you talk to just like uh, the everyday person, and I'm not not, not necessarily even athletes, just like uh, if you talk to your uh, your mother or uh, just persons who know altitude training exists, they will um, they will probably um, all of them will think it works. So I think the whole hey actually it probably doesn't work or it may not work thing is something that. That's a little bit to the in the athlete or science community. I would say outside this rather small circle, people don't really know so much about that. I would say one myth is that is the biggest myth is that it's clearly working and that there's no no debate about it. Part of the myth is probably also the 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 extent of the improvement that that people would be expecting. You know, thinking that you go to altitude as a couch potato and come back as Lance Armstrong, whereas in reality, we're talking about an improvement that may very well be very important for an elite athlete. But if you're, uh, if you're like the every three, three and a half, four hours marathon runner is, is not very uh, relevant for you. So that's the second one. So the first one, let me remember the first one. Yeah. The first one being that it like uh, works beyond doubt. The second one that, uh, 
that it's a massive improvement that you can expect. Uh, I would say the third one is that altitude, altitude training is just seen as a form of like legal blood doping so that you can pretty much replace what would otherwise be considered cheating all the, and, and expanding your red blood cell volume while ignoring that you will have a lot of other effects of altitude as well. And that the amount of red blood cells that you gain is, is much smaller than in most of the, of the uh, autologous blood transfusion studies. Uh, yeah, I would say those are those are probably the biggest misconceptions in my in my opinion. So, I, I mentioned this to you uh, earlier in one of my emails, but I wanted to ask you about the elevation masks because yeah, I've, uh, yeah I've seen them a lot, and it's a common trend these days where these companies claim that if you wear our elevation mask, it can simulate altitude for you, and you'll see some be- the same benefits or whatever. What do you think about those? I mean. You can attack. You can answer these questions in two ways. One way would be: Do they actually work? And frankly, I haven't. I haven't really followed that so much. But I guess the question of relevance here is: Do they actually simulate altitude training? And that one is easy to answer. It does not because the the trigger to altitude training is that you have reduced oxygen availability uh, either while you're passive or while you're training or whatever. Whereas what those masks are doing, they're just increasing your breathing resistance. So it's like, you know, breathing through a small hole, it will, it will be harder to in and exhale uh, the air. The effect on the oxygen content of your blood, uh, most, uh, some studies found a very, very small effect, but I mean, far from a, re- a very small reduction, but far from where it would actually have any physiological implications. So if those masks work, they will probably work through training your respiratory muscles because your the muscles that suck in the air and blow them out again of your lungs, they will have to work harder. Again, think of uh, having a straw or a snorkel or something, a small one in your mouth and run up a mountain. Obviously, it's a lot harder for your for your uh, respiratory muscles to do the breathing. So they will maybe get a training effect and this could improve your performance by uh, improving their fatigue resistance so that even if you are on the bike and you do very heavy work of breathing that your muscles are more, your breathing muscles are more resistant to fatigue and therefore will uh, need less blood that would otherwise be taken away from, from the perfusion of the, of the active legs and, and guided towards the, the muscles. So if I would say if the masks work, they will work uh, that way and not by not by any altitude training simulation hmm. so maybe the name should or elevation training mask maybe the, the name should be reconsidered yeah just call it breathing mask or something stupid yeah, or bane mask or something yeah <laughs> bane mask yeah um so okay let's let's end on this general question to kind of wrap everything up um in 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 short form or long form however you would like let's say I am an athlete or I'm a coach and I come to you because you're the expert and I say, hey, I'm considering altitude training for my next camp. What would you tell me? I would tell you that uh, as a scientist, I, uh, I have doubts whether this is a good idea. Uh, if, you're, if you ignore my nerdy scientist comments and uh, really wa- want to go through with this, I would say my biggest recommendation would be not to do this immediately be the first time immediately before your biggest key competition but to try it out before but even as i'm as i'm saying this i realized that i kind of contradict myself from like 20 minutes ago saying that your that your response is not reproducible 
So you're, you're putting me in a bit of a tough position here, like uh, encouraging somebody to do something that I, uh, that I would not encourage him or her to do. But uh, I guess, I mean, as I said, from a, from a scientific perspective, in controlled settings, your, your outcomes are not reproducible. Maybe, again, in, a, in a every world, in a, world, in a real world scenario where the, where the athlete is actually training, Maybe if you are one of those persons uh, having great expectations and so on, you, you can have reproducible outcomes, but then I would again uh, recommend to, to try it once or at least uh, better twice before you actually go to do it before, uh, before the Olympics race or something. Yeah. yeah, and maybe not read too much of the of, of the scientific evidence because this will probably shatter your placebo effect that you can that you can expect out of it because you're, you're you will probably get a little bit less optimistic if you're taking a closer look. But maybe this is just my <laughs> my view at it. Yeah, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? It's like yeah, you do want to listen to the scientific evidence because ultimately you want to be more informed, but also that could just mess up with your placebo, and it's so important to have that. It is important to have that, yeah. So uh, it's if 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 I mean I'm sure you have followed the, the whole scientific debate about it a little bit, and uh, maybe also how uh, how heated it can sometimes, or it can it not only can it but has it gotten uh, in a couple of debates? Uh, I'm trying to say a, a little bit out of that by saying, look, I'm looking at the scientific evidence. I'm happy to present my arguments. I'm happy to listen to your arguments. My main argument being there's many studies and uh, almost none of them, there's very few exceptions show, show, clearly showing a beneficial effect. Uh, if, but then again, if you're, if you're convinced and you think, uh, I mean, for the athlete, if you're convinced and you want to do it, there's nothing at all arguing against this. As a scientist, maybe you should, you have a certain responsibility to, to you know, uh, look deep into it and see whether you, whether this, what you're recommending actually is helping where it could have some negative side effects and so on. But uh, I think the athletes who athletes who believe in in altitude training shouldn't be offended if if, if researchers uh, like me say I don't think it works actually. Uh, whereas, well, among researchers, certainly the debate is helpful and important. I think it we should try to keep it at a little bit more. Uh, or a bit, little bit less um, emotional level because in the end we're talking science and we should look at facts and not at not at personal beliefs and so on. I think most importantly, what I what I believe what should be done for for future research because there's been so many studies done in this field and such a huge uh, proportion of it is not per, not very good science. You know, so many studies having. Uh, uh, I'm not even talking about placebo control, although it's obviously a big factor as well, but not having a control group or having a different training uh, output in a control group and so on. So I think, I really think there is not even a point in doing more of those studies. I think the only thing that can advance the field from a scientific perspective is to do like uh, really gold standard, high quality studies. I don't think any other thing will, will advance us anymore. Right, right. And I think that's a great way to... to to kind of wrap everything up it's, it's <laughs> like where so. do we go from here you know where do we go from here yeah i mean yeah. in the end uh, yeah again if you follow the debate you can see there's there's the two camps and uh, they're they're smashing uh, each other verbally up somewhat and uh, yeah if you want to if you want to go on and really advance it then 
the ones who don't think like both sides should should go into it completely open-minded saying look if it does work i'm happy to change my attitude and suck it up and say okay i was wrong obviously it does work and vice versa if it doesn't work and you always said it did work but i guess some people are, 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 are so settled so strongly in one camp that they would also find it a little bit difficult to to to, to change course now i don't know but i think it should be neutrally designed highly highly high quality studies if we want advances anymore Perfect. preferably if any way possible with the placebo control right Perfect. That's that's awesome. Thank you so much, honestly, for taking the time and all the oh, all the information you shared. Um, anything you wanted to promote? Maybe social media. Anything you got going on that you want to bring up? <laughs> I'm a little bit. Uh, I want to say too old for social media, but I never really uh, ended up there. But uh, um, so I, I guess I'll skip on that one. I hope people are, are are listening to that podcast and are, are having fun and. Uh, uh, if anybody wants uh, wants to ask a, a question or something, I'm sure you can find my. If you if you put my name on on the podcast, yeah, they can sure. they can Google me, and I'm ha happy to answer questions or emails if anybody wants to like get in contact. Absolutely. So old school email, nothing. Uh, like. Yeah, send you a fax or something, <laughs> and you'll get back to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. A letter or uh, yeah. yeah.